0: Yeah, so good morning. Good to see you Hope and Anchor once again. I've been telling you for weeks at the end of the Law and Profit series that we were done, and then I kept like, actually, no, one more week. Well, we're done with that. And then last week was a standalone sermon, a uh, one-hit wonder, if you will, uh, and I told you that this week we are starting a, a series, a 17-part series on the classical Christian spiritual disciplines. Well, I got inspired, I listened to a podcast, blame podcasts, really, uh, or no, actually I listened to a book on tape, well, not on tape, but you know, <laughs> it, was, it was on the interwebs, on the World Wide Web. And um kind of sparked an idea that I wanted to really take this week to talk about, because I think it's helpful. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, it really has nothing to do with Mother's Day, or does it? So anyway, today's message is called Ambidextrous Faith. Ambidextrous Faith. Uh, Today's going to be kind of a a parade of characters, mostly from Europe and uh, some from Asia, but anyway, lots of history, lots of characters, so uh, enjoy. After being wounded in World War I in April of 1918, in the Battle of Arras, which was in France, C.S. Lewis was discharged from the British Army in December of that same year. Returning home to England, Lewis moved in with his adopted mother, Mrs. Janie Moore. He moved in with his adopted mother, Janie Moore, whom he had pledged to care for If ever her son, Patty Moore, he was Irish, Patty Moore, was killed in the war, which sadly Patty was to be killed in the war in that same year, 1918. Mrs. Moore had become like a mother to C.S. Lewis, whose whose, whose birth mother had died when Lewis was only nine years old. Thus... Lewis had formed a special lifelong bond with Miss Moore. But nearly three decades later, Mrs. Moore developed dementia. She developed dementia, and she soon required daily care. And much of that daily care became Lewis's responsibility. Now Lewis, if you know anything about C.S. Lewis's life and what he did, um, Lewis had a very busy teaching schedule at Modlin College, which was part of Oxford as well as uh, many speaking commitments and writing projects that he was working on. Soon, however, the demands of caring for Mrs. Moore began to really take their toll on Lewis. As he approached, as C.S. Lewis approached his 50th birthday in the year 1948, uh, he began to feel as if his better days were behind him and that his writing ability was waning. Have you ever felt that? It's like, yeah, I peaked. I I peaked in the past. I'm past my prime. I no longer have what it takes. I I, I no longer have my best stuff available. Anyway, Lewis felt like his his, uh, better days were behind him and his writing ability was beginning to wane. I mean, how could you not feel that way (laughs) just objectively? I mean, think about it. In the past decade for Lewis, he had written such uh, iconic books as Mere Christianity. Lewis had written the Screw Tape Letters. All in, this is all in ten years, right? Uh, Mere Christianity, Screw Tape Letters. He wrote the entire Space Trilogy. He wrote the Abolition of Man, the Problem of Pain, the Great Divorce, and Miracles. All in the past ten years. That dude's prolific, writing and writing and writing. And suddenly, things seem to be screeching, grinding to a halt. Each of these books quickly became bestsellers, and. Each book in their own right helped launch C.S. Lewis into the international spotlight. He wasn't just growing in popularity in England or in Europe, he was also growing in popularity in the United States. So he was being thrust, launched into the international spotlight, and putting him in increasing demand for both speaking and writing. But now things seemed to be coming to a standstill. Things felt diminished. Things felt like they were coming to an end for him. He found himself feeling chronically spread too thin. He felt himself feeling emotionally drained. He felt himself stuck, which I think in the English language, that word says so much. If someone comes to you and says, I just feel, I feel stuck. I feel stuck. One syllable that brings to mind so much about a situation, so many feelings. Lewis felt stuck. He was struggling to find not just motivation, not just creativity, but at root, he was just struggling to find time, struggling to find time. He felt resigned to a diminished future. He felt resigned to a future which no longer held promise, a future uh, increasingly marked by nothing but loss and disappointment. In a letter to Father John Calabria in 1949, C.S. Lewis, echoing the psalmist, wrote, crying out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? C.S. Lewis was struggling. He was clearly struggling, as he wrote to his friend, Father John Calabria. He was struggling with disruptions. He was struggling with weariness. And I think, ultimately, he was struggling with accepting this new normal. I mean, we rebel against those ideas, that this would be how it's going to be now. The way it was is no longer a reality for me, is no longer accessible to me. This is what it's like from this point forward. I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can accept this new normal. Yet this is where Lewis found himself. How long, O Lord? Yet one thing we notice here, and I think this is key. Despite all the frustrations and all those feelings of despair, C.S. Lewis continued to pray. He continued to pray. He continued to ask for God's grace. God, give me the grace to accept this situation with a humble spirit. God, I don't like this at all. I am not I'm not okay with how things are becoming or how things have become. But God, in the midst of this, please give me a humble spirit to accept to accept this. Lewis sought a willingness to receive both joy and sorrow in his life. Is that difficult? I mean, we would definitely prefer joy. But we've all lived long enough to know that sorrow is part of the deal. So Lewis prayed, God, give me a willingness to receive both joy and sorrow in this life. To Calabria, he he wrote further, If it shall please God that I write more books, blessed be he. If it shall not please him, again, blessed be he. Perhaps it will be the most wholesome thing for my soul that I lose both fame and skill, lest I were to fall into that evil disease, vainglory. It's like maybe God knows best in this. Maybe he's taking away my fame. Maybe he's taking away my skill because he wants to save me from that evil disease, vainglory. Do you know what vainglory is? Yeah, imagine that pride and vanity, vanity had a baby. It would be vainglory. Pride and vanity would say, what should we name our baby? I like vainglory. Vainglory, it's a mixture of that pride and that vanity. Uh, maybe he's like, hey, maybe God needs to purify me of this. Maybe he needs to strip these things away because they're starting to define me too much. I'm relying on these things to define it, to identify myself too greatly. So here's today's big idea, and I want to return to this, and it's kind of a clunky sentence, but we're kind of big on clunky sentences around here. But listen closely. I'm going to say this like three or four times today. Being able to pray to God honestly to lament our hard situations, yet believe that whatever enters our lives can be used by God for our benefit and blessing, even when it is opposite to our desires, that is necessary for us. It is how we grow, and it is how we become more like Jesus. I'll say that again. Being able to pray To God honestly and to lament our hard situations, yet believe that whatever enters our lives can be used by God for our benefit and blessing, even when it is the opposite of our desires, that is necessary for us. It is how we grow, it's how we become more like Jesus. Think about the people you know in your life who are the wisest people you know? Who possesses the most durable sort of faith in Jesus? Well, I almost guarantee that it's the person that has been through some of the toughest stuff, isn't it? And the people who suffered, the people who've experienced loss, they bring with them a certain depth and a certain perspective, a certain wisdom. If what they experienced did not destroy them, they gained a perspective that was clarifying that was that was that was keen and you found yourself being drawn to it say hey talk me off this ledge i need someone who's walked this path to guide me to, to 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 pray for me i mean think about it but the thing is is we've all been where lewis was right We've all been there, we've found ourselves peering into the abyss, we've all felt that that growing sense of uncertainty, anticipating, finding ourselves flinching at a coming loss. We are familiar with Lewis's situation. Yet what do we do in those times? What do we do in those experiences, in those times of pain and despair? Do we give up? Sometimes. Sometimes I'll raise my hand. Sometimes I give up. I collapse into a puddle of pessimism, uh, of, uh, 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 of, of, of um, synonym for pessimism, and, and I have a hard time getting up. So do we give up or do we choose to lay it in God's hand? to trust in some place in our soul that God can use this. I trust you, God, that you can take this, and whatever happens, it can be used for my benefit. It can be turned for my blessing. God, I will hold fast, and I will trust. at a few, I'll trust in a future point in time where I'm able to look back on this and say, thanks, thank you. You did something amazing in a situation that I thought was hopeless, God. Thank you thank you. I love what Philip Yancey says. He says, faith, it, faith is believing in a future that will only make sense in reverse. It's like we're only going to look back on a lot of this junk we go through and see it fall into place like the constellation Orion. Like, oh, there it is. Once we reach a particular time and in, in sp- time and in, in perspective, are we able to look back and actually see the picture of what God was up to? But in the midst of it, it's just chaos. It's formless and void, and it makes no sense. But someday we'll look back and we'll say, Thank you, God. You were faithful. You turned this heartache, you turned this suffering into benefit and blessing. Thank you. Uh, in the 4th century, there were two uh, Turkish theologians. Uh, one was named Gregory of Nicaea, uh, and uh, the other one is St. Basil. St. Basil. Well, Gregory of Nicaea once called St. Basil, <laughs> Basil's faith ambidextrous. Uh, some of you like baseball. What does it mean to be ambidextrous? What? Hit or
1: throw with both hands. Yeah, you can,
0: you're can. you proficient with both hands. You can, you can bat with both hands. You can throw with both hands. It's pretty great if you can do it. If you can't, it's just flummoxing. <laughs> I don't get it. Don't, if you see me throw with my left hand, it's fun. Anyway. Gregory of Nicaea once called St. Basil's faith ambidextrous. What did he mean by that? He meant that St. Basil seemed to be able to welcome pleasure with his right hand and afflictions with his left. In the life with God, he was able to receive with his right hand the pleasures, the benefits of God, and with his left hand, accept the afflictions that come. St. Basil was convinced that both pleasure and affliction, they both served God's design. They served God's design for humanity, but also God's design in his life. Jean-Pierre de Cassade, he was a Jewish priest and author in the 17th century in France, he likewise expressed this sentiment. He said, A living faith is nothing else than a steadfast pursuit of God through all that disguises, disfigures, demolishes, and seeks to abolish Him. Do you hear that? A living faith is nothing else than a steadfast pursuit of God through all that disguises, disfigures, demolishes, and seeks to abolish Him. Love and accept the present moment as the best. With perfect trust in God's universal goodness, everything, everything, without exception, is an instrument and a means of sanctification. God's purpose for us is always what will contribute most to our good. Did you hear that? God's purpose for us is always what will contribute most to our good. Someday, somehow, in some way, we will look back and say, yes, that was used by God for my good. That was somehow unexpectedly the best for me. So I think the answer for us lies in this idea of ambidextrous faith, being able to use both hands as we walk with the Lord. Ambidextrous faith, an increasing ability to weather life's storms, to receive pleasure and affliction with grace and humility, to live open-handedly, increasingly able to trust God to redeem both the good and the bad. With ambidextrous faith, we can learn to rise to the heights of success and we can be plunged to the depths of failure and all the while not lose hope. As apparently this is possible. We can go out into the world never failing to believe in God's good intentions for us. And that's quite a statement. Do you believe in God's good intentions for you? That God intends good for you? Sometimes that's hard to believe. Sometimes we're pretty beat down. and It's like, God, I'm not even sure you are my friend anymore. Man, how could you let that happen to me? But we can go out into the world saying, God, I trust that your intentions are good for me. Trusting that everything we experience, everything I experience, it's redeemable and can be useful in my growth. That it can be put to good use in me. A searing example, of uh, a difficult example, of ambidextrous faith is found in Job's story. How many here are pretty familiar with Job's story? I mean, it's the oldest, probably the first thing written down that we have in the Bible. Actually, it's the oldest written work in the Bible, most believe. It goes back a while, but it's a searing example of ambidextrous faith. After losing his children, after losing his livelihood, after losing all of his property, Satan, the enemy, the accuser, is allowed to come and afflict Job with sores. From his head to his, to his feet. Sores break out on his body, causing him to sit and scrape his boils with broken pieces of, of pottery. What? I mean, I felt pretty miserable. I mean, a friend of mine has shingles right now, and I don't think he scraped them with pottery. <laughs> did, did you? No? All right. Um, I mean, he scraped his boils with broken pieces of pottery. I mean, go ahead, go ahead, tell me about how bad your breakup with your girlfriend was. Go ahead and tell me about that awful haircut. Maybe that 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 negative grade you got in school, or that bad grade, or that pimple you got right before prom. Boo hoo. I'll tell you about Job. I'll tell you about what Job went through in his and uh, his freshly scraped boils. I mean, imagine the situation. Job had just finished giving all of his boils a good scraping, and. His wife comes to him. His wife, his most, the person in the university he's most vulnerable to, most trusting, and most intimate with, his wife comes to him and actually says, Hey, I've got a recommendation, Job. Here's what I think you should do. I mean, taking in all the sweep of things that have happened. We lost our kids, our house, we lost our job, our pets' heads fell off. <laughs> Why don't you try this? Have you tried cursing God and dying? His wife, bless her, says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? That is not helpful advice. I mean, even if it was true, I mean, it's like sometimes you just don't need to hear it that way. She could have like churched it up a little bit. I don't know. Curse God and die. It's then It's in response to that bad advice that we see Job's ambidextrous faith rise up. And it gives us a glimpse into his durable, divine perspective in the midst of all of his incredible sorrow and pain. Look at Job 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 10. Job 2, 1 through 10. One day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. "'Where have you come from?' the Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, "'I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that goes on.' Then the Lord asked Satan, "'Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil, and he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause.' Satan replied to the Lord, "'Skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face.' All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with pieces of broken pottery, and as as he sat among the ashes, his wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Verse 10, but Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Lots of good dialogue (laughs) here, right? You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept, listen to this, should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So, in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Job said nothing wrong. Even in the lowest imaginable place of despair, Job, when challenged, when confronted, he was able to cling to trust in God. Job, in the deepest part of that pit, he was able to believe that whatever he, that God allowed, it could be redeemed. Hope was never fully lost. Even though, one, even though none of it made sense, none of it made sense. If you've read Job, not a lot of this makes sense, and not any of it is explained to him. Even though none of it made sense, somehow Job held on to his hope that God could and would use it all for his good. Now, does this mean that Job, with that understanding, was able to to put on a brave face? Was he able to keep a stiff upper lip and to, to, to high step over all of the profound sorrow, pain, and anguish? No, no. If you read Job's story, it is brutally honest. It is so very honest. Clearly, Job was willing to hold on. He was able to hold on to this faith, his hope, but he was also able to lament and to complain honestly to God. I mean, Job lets loose, questioning God, doubting God, uh, just like accusing God, it sounds like sometimes. But it's weird. At the end of verse 10 in chapter 2, it says, So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. Apparently, according to the writer of Scripture, nothing Job did in his conversations, in his crying out to God, was wrong. It was all good, and it was true. So, let's do this. I want to read Job 29 and 30. And this is an incredible assessment. Listen to Job's words here. Job's assessment of his good times and his bad times. Here in these back-to-back chapters, Job lays out an assessment of of his times of pleasure and success. And then he turns the corner and says, but, and he lays out this assessment of his current affliction. I've asked Jamie and Ethan to come and uh, let you hear a different voice for a few minutes as they read Job 29 and 30.
2: So in Job 29, Job is speaking of his former blessings. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone unto my, upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil, when I went to the gate of the city and I took my seat in the public square. The young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard of me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took upon the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I thought I will die in my own house, my days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water and the and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in, my, in me, the bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as the king among his troops. I was like the one who comforts mourners.
0: Yeah, So so good. I mean, it's like he's, he's clearly saying, hey, my life was rich. I was blessed. But then we turn the corner on Job chapter 30.
1: <laughs> Job 30 will be coming from the message translation. But no longer, now I'm the butt of their jokes, young thugs and whippersnappers. Why considered their fathers mere inexperienced pups, but they are worse than dogs, good for nothing, stray, mangy animals, half-starved, scavenging the back alleys, howling at the moon, homeless ragamuffins chewing on old bones and licking old tin cans, outcasts from the community, cursed as dangerous delinquents. Nobody would put up with them. They were driven from the neighborhood. You could hear them out there at the edge of the town, yelping and barking, huddled in junkyards, a gang of beggars and no-names thrown out on their ears. But now I'm the one they're after, mistreating me, taunting and mocking. They abhor me. They abuse me. How dare those scoundrels? they spit in my face. Now that God has undone me and left me in a heap, they hold nothing back. Anything goes. They come at me from my blind side, trip me up, then jump on me while I'm down. They throw every kind of obstacle in my path, determined to ruin me. And no one lifts a finger to help me. They violate my broken body, trample through the rubble of my ruined life. Terrors assault me, my dignity in shreds, salvation up in smoke. And now my life drains out as suffering seizes and grips me hard. Night gnaws at my bones, the pain never lets up. I am tied hand and foot, my neck in a noose. I twist and turn, thrown face down in the muck. I'm a muddy mess, inside and out. I shout for help, God, and get nothing, no answer. I stand to face you in protest, and and you give me a blank stare. You've turned into my tormentor. You slapped me around, knocked me about. You raised me up so I was riding high, and then dropped me, and I crashed. I know you're determined to kill me, to put me six feet under. What did I do to deserve this? Did I ever hit anyone who is calling for help? Haven't I wept for those who lived a hard life, been heartsick over the lot of the poor? But where did it get me? I expected good, but evil showed up. I looked for light, but darkness fell. My stomach's in a constant churning, never settling down. Each day confronts me with more suffering. I walk under a black cloud. The sun is gone." I stand in the congregation and protest. I howl with the jackals. I hoot with the owls. I'm black and blue all over, burning up with fever. My fiddle plays nothing but the blues. My mouth harp wails laments.
0: Wow. Thank you, guys. Maybe you heard something in that, a phrase or a statement that just resonated, and I heard what, I, I hadn't read this in the message, thanks, Ethan. But I'm a muddy mess, inside and out. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. So low, so honest. I'm a muddy mess, inside and out. My fiddle only plays the
1: blues.
0: (laughs) So good. What are we to make of Job's honest assessment? Honest assessment of his successes and his pleasures and also of his suffering and his affliction. He is very clear about how good things were and he's very clear about he's very brutally honest about how bad they've become. He uses a lot of imagery, a lot of word pictures, but here's the thing, you don't read about Job's experience and think, "Oh, he's exaggerating." I mean, everything he went through, you hear this explanation, his his description of it and you're like, "Yeah, that sounds about right." That sounds about right. We don't get the sense that he's like, "Oh, he's blowing his way out of proportion." No, this is w- way bad. Way bad for Job. The verse 26 or 28 of Job 30 that really grips my heart is, So I looked for good, but evil came instead. I waited for the light, but darkness fell. My heart is troubled and restless. Days of suffering torment me. I walk in gloom without sunlight. In the New Living Translation, that's how it reads. And he's just like, I, I looked, I waited for the light, Yet all that came was more and deeper darkness. So I walk in darkness. That's all I have. If you read to the end of Job, you will find that he was able to hold fast. He didn't give up and he didn't take his wife's advice. Job did not curse God and die. He did not. He, he lived to see God redeem his losses, to faithfully restore him, and to work all of his experiences out for his benefits and for his sanctification, his growth in holiness. His... So here's, this brings us back to our big idea then. Like Job, being able to pray to God honestly. To lament hard situations, yet believe that whatever enters our life can be used by God for our benefit and blessing, even when it is opposite of our desires. That is necessary for us. That is how we grow and become more like Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, if you follow the life of the Apostle Paul, his life and his ministry, you will find that he too experienced the heights and the depths of life Going from great success to great discouragement, to deep discouragement. Think about it. Paul, he was a prized student of Judaism, studying under, being tutored under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. Uh, He was then God's chosen missionary to the Gentiles. And he's the author of most of the New Testament. He's got credentials, right? But also, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a prisoner, He was a shipwrecked castaway. He was a pagan punching bag. He was, at times, rejected by some inside the faith and severely persecuted by many outside the faith. I mean, Paul had experienced it all. Yet he, all the while, possessed this same ambidextrous kind of faith. This ability to receive with his right hand and his left hand. He, he possesses the same ambidextrous faith that we see in Job, that we see in St. Basil, and we see in C.S. Lewis. Let's look to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. Philippians 4, 10 through 20 Paul, writing to the Philippian believers, thanking them for all their gifts, he says, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live with almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty one. With plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, the Philippians, you Philippians, were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me. You sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me from Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is, that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who took, takes care of me will supply all your needs from His glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father, forever and ever. Amen. I love it that Paul's epistles, they're letters, they're actually written to somebody and he's sharing very personal feelings here and he's saying, hey, I've been at the heights and I've been to the low. I've been full and I've been starving and all the while God's been faithful and a lot of times his faithfulness has showed up through you. So thanks, thanks. But I'm not asking for a handout. I've learned to be content regardless of where the path of my life is leading me at the moment. I'm just going to be content. I want to be satisfied in God's presence in my life. In following after Jesus, Paul learned to live with both abundance and lack. He he learned how to live with comfort and pain, trusting that whatever he was to endure, God's good plan, it was secure. And it was Christ who gave him the strength to hold on. It was Christ who actually empowered him to continue following in the path that God had for him. It is Christ, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is an important and a necessary. This is it's important. It's an important and necessary lesson for us for all who follow after Jesus. Hear this. Our time on this planet, it will, be, it will bring us both joy and sorrow. It will bring us gain and it will bring us loss. There will be times of thanksgiving and there will be times of grief. It's just part of the human experience. We will experience both, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But do we believe that God can redeem it all? And are we willing to hold fast regardless of what comes our way? Are we learning to be ambidextrous in our faith? Or are we thrown completely off the rails? Are we totally uh, broadsided when something dis- uncomfortable comes or something we wanted isn't, never becomes ours? Does that totally wreck our faith? Do we start accusing God? Do we start turning our back on Him because it didn't go our way, that we didn't like the outcome? Are we learning to be more ambidextrous in our faith? Are we ready and able to receive success and pleasure with our right hand and pain and affliction with our left and then together offer all those things up to God through our faith in Jesus Christ? I think that's key, choosing to offer it up, right hand and left, offering it back up to God in Christ Jesus. As he was approaching 50 years old, C.S. Lewis, he sensed that his life was in transition, that he was now stuck on a downward trajectory in his life. Much of what had been so rewarding and so exhilarating just in the past decade was now gone. It was gone. The great joys he had in his youth, the success he had had in his career, these things were now fading, and he cried out, how long? How long, O Lord? And when he cried this, when he wrote this, I think he echoed something of our hearts too. Some of you here have been crying out, even recently, how long, O Lord? How long? How long must I endure this? How long must each, how many of my days must be marked by loss and by grieving what was and is no longer? How long, O Lord? It echoes the language of our own hearts. Yet, please notice C.S. Lewis, he didn't give up. He didn't give up. He didn't give in to the despair and the disappointment. What did he do? He chose, like Job, he chose to plant his feet in God's kindness. He planted his feet in God's kindness, trusting that what lay ahead was still able to be part of that good work that God was bringing to completion in him through Christ Jesus. So C.S. Lewis, he continued doing uh, the task that was before him. C.S. Lewis continued caring for Mrs. Moore until she passed away, until she died in 1951. 1951. Now, however, just the year before, in 1950, Lewis had completed one more book. Lewis, in 1950, completed another book, and uh, on on October 16th of 1950, the first edition of a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe hit the bookstands, and unexpectedly a whole new chapter in Lewis's life suddenly began. The Chronicles of Narnia series would follow, and the Chronicles of Narnia series, to many, became his signature achievement. In fact, there's some in this room that know none of his books except the Chronicles of Narnia. The dark clouds of discouragement that had marked Lewis's life in 1948 began to clear in 1950 as God's goodness and faithfulness started to break through the clouds. So being able to pray to God honestly, to lament hard situations, yet believe that whatever enters our lives can be used by God for our benefit and blessing, even when it's the opposite of our desires, that is necessary for us. It is how we grow. And it is how we begin become more like Jesus himself. So one last British person and we'll be done. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, in the throes of World War II, he's speaking to a war-weary nation. Winston Churchill says, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Do not let us speak of darker days, let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days, these are great days. Great things can and are happening even now, even in the darkness. So may you discover a durable joy, a durable joy which comes from an ambidextrous faith. You will be forced to endure much in your life. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. You will be forced to endure much in your life, just like Jesus did, guaranteed. But God will never forsake you. He will always be there right by your side, working all things out for the good of those who trust in Him. He will be working in and through that suffering to redeem it. Believe it or not, the clouds will clear someday. The clouds will clear and the sun will shine again, so don't give up. Don't give up. Keep both hands open, receiving and offering all of it, good and bad, highs and lows, joys and pain, ecstasy and drudgery, offering it all up to God so it can be transformed. Don't give up. You never know what's next. You never know what God has in store for you. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word and thank you for the surprise we find in the life with Christ. Sometimes it's not a welcome surprise, but it's, it's in the end more encouraging and more robust. That although we struggle with appropriating suffering and hardship in the life with Christ, we sometimes fall into the belief that if we were living right, we wouldn't suffer. If we were truly being faithful, we wouldn't have pain. But we find that's not the case. And so God, today we want to be careful not to turn from you because we can't, 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 can't square what it means to, for you to be a good God and for us to experience suffering. We want to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and say, you know, if anybody was worthy of a life that was just completely charmed and never had pain or suffering, it should be Jesus. But it's Jesus who came to live among us, who suffered by our hands, was tortured and crucified and laid in the ground, yet then rose again. And all the sad things came untrue. Or what if you're doing the same thing in us? What if the path that leads us into suffering leads us in the path of following Jesus and we enter into it and we see Jesus conquer the suffering and conquering the loss and the, the depravity from the inside out? Just as Jesus descended into death and conquered death from the inside out, God, maybe that's what you're doing in us, that our suffering and our loss, our pain and our affliction Maybe it's deep inside those things that we find your greatest work of transformation, your greatest work of resurrection. So God, I pray that we would have a robust faith, an ambidextrous faith, the kind that is able to use both hands to receive both good and bad and just offer it all to you, just reflexively offer it back to you. Because God, we can't see, we can't know, but we can trust. We can trust that you're good, and that you're kind, and that you are working all these things to a good outcome you are faithful to complete that good work you started in us so God I pray that when we can see nothing else even sometimes when we struggle to believe anything else that we would just plant our feet and we would hold on for dear life knowing that you can work all things for our benefit and for our blessing and we trust that you would give us patience give us endurance and let us look over and over again to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith we ask We're going to worship a bit more, and this is maybe a really important time for you to sit with the Lord. Because as I've been talking, I have no way of knowing what you're, you've been through. I have no way of knowing what you're going through right now. And this is a precious moment that you can sit with Jesus. Imagine Him sitting next to you like a friend and just turn and say, help me understand this. Help me see this clearly. Help me borrow your perspective for a little bit. Let me make some sort of sense of this. Sit with the Lord. Maybe you found yourself rejecting the claims of God being good because you've hurt so badly, and you can't square God being good with you feeling so bad. Look to Jesus and say, God, if I'm following Jesus, how do I rightly understand difficulty? How do I rightly understand suffering? And how you might, from the inside out, redeem that, transform that for my good and for your glory. Can we do that? Can we sit here for three or four minutes while we sing and just interact with the Lord? His desire is that we grow. Grow in faith. Grow in understanding. But grow mostly to be like Jesus. So make the most of this opportunity. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be right at the back and I'd love to pray with you. But don't pass this up. This is important.